Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 162, Long Duration Mirror Flight NASA 4, Part 1. A Candlelit Dinner. Before we begin, two quick things. First, yes, this episode is a two-parter. I'm generally reluctant to make two-part episodes these days, since I know that two weeks is a long time to wait for a single mission, let alone half of a mission. But the mission that we'll be discussing today is wall-to-wall bonkers, and there's just too much stuff to cover. So, two-parter it is. Second, since I brought it up last time, I think I owe you all a quick book review. As usual, I pulled from a number of sources for this episode, but for much of the first-hand account, I relied on Jerry Lininger's book, Off the Planet, Surviving Five Perilous Months Aboard the Space Station Mir. I'll caveat this by saying that I haven't had a chance to fully read the book, but what I did read, I enjoyed. There is an unusual amount of haze surrounding the events that took place on Mir, especially on this mission, so it can be tough to be sure exactly what is true. So I think it's good to treat any source talking about this mission with a small bit of healthy skepticism, this podcast episode included. That said, Lininger's account rings true to me, while also being thrilling and surprisingly funny. And it's nice to have stories from someone who was there and who was also on the NASA team. So I'd say it's worth checking out. Last time, we talked about the logistics-oriented flight of Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-81. While NASA always finds ways to squeeze in some extra science, this flight was primarily dedicated to retrieving NASA 3 crew member John Blaha, along with the results of his months of work, and deliver NASA 4 crew member Jerry Lininger. Atlantis departed Mir after five days of docked operations, and Lininger watched it fade into a bright spot on the horizon before disappearing from sight entirely. There was nothing to do but turn his attention from the window, look around at his home for the next 18 weeks, and get to work. The previous five days had been the usual flurry of activity that comes with any crew handover on Mir. Thousands of pounds of equipment were moved in both directions, and John Blaha moved out while Jerry Lininger moved in. Lininger would also be dealing with the shock that seems to affect everybody who enters Mir for the first time. And this wasn't even something that only affected the American crews. Mir commander Valery Korzun said that even for the Russians, it was quite a surprise to discover how different the real thing was from their training. Lininger was leaving behind the gleaming and neatly organized space shuttle Atlantis for a space station that was well past its shelf life, with darkened modules stuffed full of random equipment and garbage. I know it kind of sounds like I'm dunking on Mir here, but that's not really my intent, it's just a fact. The station was a technological marvel and a real achievement, but it was also on the decline, and it showed. Hoping to ease that shock and ensure that Lininger remained happy, healthy, and productive during his four-month stay, John Blaha took great pains to pull Lininger aside and tell him how things really worked on the station. Some of the warnings were pretty funny, like a heads-up that one of the two treadmills had a malfunctioning speed selector, and it only worked at a full sprint, so Lininger better be ready to go all out or risk being thrown across the station. But most of Blaha's advice was much more serious. In an example of a practical lesson, Blaha showed him where the oxygen respirators were and insisted that Lininger physically put one on and demonstrate that he knew how it worked. But these lessons also applied to mental health. In Lininger's account of Blaha's warnings, he told him to expect to be treated as a second-class citizen by the ground, with limited communication windows, which they will unapologetically cancel. Not mincing his words, Blaha said of the Russian ground controllers, 
You are an inconvenience, a nuisance to them, your work deemed unimportant. He also warned that the isolation would be the biggest challenge of the entire flight and to not count on the ground to make anything better. This may sound like a pretty grim way to start out a long-duration space mission, but Leninger called Blaha's lessons out as incredibly useful. Blaha spent his entire mission feeling betrayed by what the experience was actually like, while also fruitlessly trying to improve it on the fly. But thanks to Blaha's warnings, Leninger was able to go into this mission with realistic expectations. If you already know that something is going to be a difficult slog, you can mentally prepare yourself and not be ground down by the constant surprise and frustration. Of course, John Blaha's intense five-day course about living on Mir wasn't the only training that Leninger had gone through for this mission. Like Norm Thagard, Shannon Lucid, and John Blaha before him, Jerry Leninger had moved out to Star City in Russia for month after month of training in the Russian language and spacecraft systems. Two particular moments in Leninger's training experience stood out to me as both pretty funny as well as pretty telling about the differences between the Russian and American approaches to life. The Russians had learned early on just how important it was that a long-duration crew work well together. Because it wasn't just work. A space station crew had to live together, prepare meals together, go on spacewalks together, and in general, trust each other with their lives. So the Russian space program wisely took the psychology of long-duration spaceflight very seriously. But maybe a little too seriously. Leninger noted that the psychologist assigned to keep an eye on their crew was weirdly omnipresent. The dude was just always there, right in the middle of everything, preventing the natural crew dynamics that he was supposedly trying to observe and encourage. The psychologist would often pull Leninger away from his crewmates and present him with a stack of 10 cards of different colors. He would then ask him to arrange the colors based on how he felt. Leninger was perplexed but played along, only to discover that the routine wore pretty thin by the sixth or seventh time. He also admitted to occasionally sorting them in a random order just to mess with the psychologist and keep him guessing. Though he was always careful to never lead the deck off with the nebulous but still dreaded black card. On another day, Leninger and the cosmonaut crew were training for a possible water egress of the Soyuz. Under nominal conditions, the Soyuz lands on the wide-open steppes of Kazakhstan, which was plenty dry. But since a crew could theoretically be forced to evacuate and perform an emergency deorbit at any time, and since Mir was in a 51-degree inclination orbit, that meant that a Soyuz could theoretically return to Earth anywhere as far north as Canada to as far south as Australia, along with all the water in between. So, basically they could land anywhere, and they better be ready to survive a water landing. Shannon Lucid and John Blaha had already discovered just how unpleasant this particular training could be, pulling on cold-weather survival gear in a bobbing spacecraft that was not at all cold, but rather swelteringly hot. Lucid distinctly remembered the little rivers of sweat from the crew sloshing back and forth on the backs of their seats, and Leninger's experience was similarly uncomfortable. Once he wriggled free of the spacecraft and got into his life raft, he activated the standard safety equipment, which included flares, colored dye, and shark repellent, among other things. Curious, he asked the Russian safety diver if the shark repellent actually worked. The diver said, no, it does not do a bit of good. In fact, the sharks might even be attracted to the color for all we know. This was already pretty unnerving, but in an even weirder and very Russian twist, the diver continued, 
explaining that the shark repellent's goal wasn't really to repel sharks. It was to prevent stranded cosmonauts from becoming anxious that they might be attacked by sharks. The anxiety of the shark attack was more dangerous than the chances of actually encountering a shark. Leninger wrote in his book, quote, I wished that I had not asked the question. I wished that he had not replied truthfully. I decided to forget his answer immediately. But the days of training and maybe or maybe not repelling sharks were in the rearview mirror. Jerry Leninger was on Mir and would be there for the next four months, so it was time to make the most of it. With John Blaha's stern warnings still ringing in his ears, he began to settle into a daily routine. The day would start at 8 in the morning, but in another eyebrow-raising detail of life aboard Mir, the alarm clock was just Mir's master alarm. Because what better way to start the day than with the thought that you might be in mortal peril? After 20 minutes of morning hygiene and using the waste collection facilities, Leninger would get to work. What that exactly entailed would change throughout the mission, but would be listed in the daily schedule. Rush attended the schedule every minute of the day and expected the crew to stick to it, but Leninger preferred to follow the lead of Mir Commander Corzon and use the schedule more like a checklist of stuff to get done that day. It's interesting that despite Skylab being more than 20 years in the past at this point, the Russians still seemingly hadn't learned the lesson that micromanaging from the ground was not the way to ensure a happy and productive crew. One everyday constant was exercise. In order to keep the crew healthy, particularly their now underused muscles and bones, the crew would work out for two hours a day, often broken up into two sessions. Leninger said that he found the treadmill to be much more difficult than he expected at first, but he eventually built up to it. Even when he wasn't exercising himself, it was still a part of daily life. He said that from several modules away, he could not only tell that someone was running, he could tell who was running by the particular rhythm pulsing through the structure. Another constant was photography. Leninger arrived on Mir with enough film to shoot 10,000 photos of life on board the station and the view from his lofty home away from home. He actually put a fair amount of work into learning how to become a really solid photographer, as well as learning to recognize particular landmarks and features from space. A personal goal of his was to help grow the list of places that had been photographed from space, since crews often focused on the United States or familiar territories like the Mediterranean Sea. With this dedicated photo training and his goals of expanding the envelope of on-orbit photography, Leninger shot roll after roll of film. He tried to strike a balance between not squandering film, but also making sure that he would end the flight with every last roll used up. In fact, when he returned to Earth, he confused the NASA film specialists because he somehow came back with more film than he left with. Apparently, he occasionally found a spare roll tucked away in the floating piles of equipment, presumably lost by the astronauts who flew before him. Between operating science experiments, exercising, taking photos out the window, preparing meals, planning for the days ahead, and so on, Leninger kept himself pretty busy. He would typically only have an hour or two free on any given day, including the weekends. In fact, he liked to joke that he actually worked 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, thanks to the electrode-laden cap that he would wear to bed as part of a sleep study. The days ticked by. We sort of did a miniature version of this on the previous episode, but in order to discuss the events of NASA 4, it's going to be important to have a somewhat workable mental map of the layout of Mir. So we're going to do a quick tour here, but don't worry, I'll remind you of the key points later when they're important. Let's start with the base block. This is the core module that everything else is built off of. 
It's where the command and control equipment lies, as well as more mundane but equally important stuff like the crew's dinner table. And again, while it's not perfect, Leninger's mental shortcut of imagining each module as about the same size and general shape as a school bus is pretty helpful. If we were to go out the front of the base block slash school bus along the plus X direction, we would enter the Kavant 1 module. This is a shorter module that houses some science equipment, some life support equipment, and on the outside has some science instruments and solar panels. If we were to keep going in the same direction, we'd find a docking port, which could accommodate either a Soyuz crew vehicle or a Progress cargo vehicle. Let's turn around and go back into the base block and exit the back of the school bus. This is a pretty weird school bus because out the back is a sort of round cube with a bunch of other school buses all attached to the sides. This cube is the node, and it's where everything else connects to Mir. If I've got my interior orientations right, as you exit the base block, the natural up direction would lead you into the Kavant 2 module. Left would lead you into Peroda. Right would go to Crystal and the docking module, so this is where the shuttle astronauts came from. And then down would get you into the Spectre module. If you were to continue straight along the long axis of the station, you'd find a second docking port dedicated to another Soyuz or Progress. So again, the long axis from front to back are Progress or Soyuz, Kavant 1, Base Block, Node, Progress or Soyuz. And then connected to the node at right angles were Crystal, Kavant 2, Peroda, and Spectre, with Spectre sort of being Jerry Lininger's home base. When Leninger arrived, the Kavant 1 docking port was occupied by the Progress M33 cargo vehicle, and the node docking port was occupied by the Soyuz TM24, which is the same Soyuz that arrived during Shannon Lucid's stay, delivering Corzon, Kaleri, and Anure. For nitpicky reasons that we don't care about, there was a preference to park long-term spacecraft at the node rather than Kavant 1. Since Soyuz TM25 would soon be arriving for a six-month stint, it was desirable to clear the node port for it, which meant that Soyuz TM-24 was going to have to go for a little Sunday drive. I mean, it was a Monday, but you get the idea. On February 6th, 1997, Progress M-33 departed the station. The next day, Corzon, Kaleri, and Leninger wriggled into their pressure suits and began powering down non-essential systems. Leninger's spine had stretched out a bit in weightlessness, making the suit donning a greater struggle than expected, but with a little elbow grease from his Russian colleagues, he was soon stuffed into it. Non-essential systems were powered down because there was always a chance that they wouldn't be able to redock and would be forced to go home. By powering down Mir as much as possible, the crew improved the chances that the aging station would survive long enough to be rescued by the next crew. Once shoehorned into the Soyuz TM-24 spacecraft, the crew prepared to undock. I was surprised to note that they needed to wait for approval from the ground, since the ground could see certain things in telemetry that the crew themselves couldn't see from onboard the spacecraft, which made me wonder what the plan was for an emergency. But this wasn't an emergency, so the crew got permission, separated, backed away, and puttered around to the other side of the station before successfully redocking on the Kavant 1 module around half an hour later. Leninger said that it was amazing how much bigger Mir seemed after being crammed into the tiny Soyuz. Just a few days later, the node docking port was once again occupied when Soyuz TM-25 arrived carrying the next Mir crew. Time for more crew biographies. Commanding Soyuz TM-25, and soon the Mir EO-23 mission, was Vasily Tsipliev. 
After spending an unreasonable amount of time trying to find a source for Commander Tsibliev's birth date and road to becoming a cosmonaut, I'm just using the low on citations Wikipedia article, so please take that for what it is. Vasily Tsibliev was born on February 20th, 1954 in the Soviet Union, making him 32 years older than Mir to the day. He was selected as a cosmonaut on March 26th, 1987, flying in space for the first time as commander of Mir EO-14 in the back half of 1993. It was on this flight that Tsibliev gained the dubious honor of becoming the first person to crash one spacecraft into another. It's possible that I'm missing another example, particularly from Russian history, so I would welcome a correction, but it's the first crash that I know about. Thanks to a misconfigured and or malfunctioning set of controls on the Soyuz, when performing the fly-around of Mir at the end of the mission, the Soyuz made gentle but jarring contact with the station, bouncing off. The collision was minor and caused no damage, but was a collision nonetheless. This is his second and final flight. Joining Tsibliev was Flight Engineer 1, Sasha Lazutkin. Alexander Lazutkin was born on October 30, 1957, in Moscow in the Soviet Union. He attended the Moscow Aviation Institute, earning a degree in mechanical engineering, before heading off to work as a research scientist and then as an engineer for Energia, the state-run corporation which runs the Russian space program. He was selected as a cosmonaut on March 3, 1992, and had served as the backup crew for the last few flights. This is his first and only mission. One quick note, something that it took me too long to pick up on is that Sasha is apparently a common Russian nickname for Alexander. And in fact, Alexander Kaleri also went by Sasha, but he's leaving soon, so it's too late for nicknames. Rounding out the Soyuz crew was an ESA crew member flying as a research cosmonaut, Reinhold Ewald. Reinhold Ewald was born on December 18, 1956, in impossible-to-pronounce town name, Germany. I'm going to go with Mönchengladbach. This isn't completely fair to Dr. Ewald, but he's only going to be here for a short time, so I'm just going to completely ignore his research and say that he was selected to join the German astronaut team in 1990, and this is his first and only flight. When the new crew arrived in their Soyuz spacecraft on February 12th, the automated system was making the final approach with a slight error in its alignment, so Commander Tsipliev took over manual control. He backed away lined up for a second run, and successfully docked with the base block node. As always, the new crew brought the favorite gift of all long-duration space flyers, fresh fruit. Leninger said that somehow even better than the taste of the fresh fruit was the smell. After a month or so in the same closed environment, a whiff of citrus apparently really grabs the attention. In order to help transition the new crew into life on Mir, as well as creating a useful overlap for short-term researchers like Reinhold Ewald, the EO-22 crew wouldn't depart for 20 days after the EO-23 crew arrived. And in fact, Valery Corzon was still the commander of the station. So for a few weeks, Mir was a bustling hive of activity, with six crew members on board instead of the usual three. On February 24th, 12 days after the new crew arrived, all six men had gathered around the dinner table in the base block, and were enjoying an evening meal and each other's company. And like any good fancy dinner on Earth, this was a candlelit dinner. No, they weren't lighting literal wax candles. Instead, the crew were using canisters of lithium perchlorate, informally known as candles. When activated, the candles kicked off a slow chemical reaction, which would generate oxygen and release it into the crew cabin. With double the usual crew size, the life support systems on Mir simply could not keep up with the amount of oxygen required. 
So with each candle providing enough oxygen for one crew member for one day, several candles a day had to be activated. Similar candle designs had been used for years in the Russian space program, mostly without trouble, and it's actually the same type of device that airplanes use when providing emergency oxygen to passengers in the event of a cabin depressurization. So they're a pretty known quantity. As dinner wrapped up, Jerry Leninger excused himself and returned to the Spectre module to get some work done. New flight engineer Sasha Lazutkin moved the few feet from the dinner table in the base block over to the Gavant 1 module, where the machinery that used the candles was located. Lazutkin later said that he made sure the reaction had started, smelling oxygen coming from the candle and feeling the warmth generated by the chemical reaction. He turned to go back to dinner when he heard a strange sound. Turning back to the candle, he saw the one sight that all spacefarers dread. Fire. The oxygen-producing canister was burning, flaring up into a large fire. Not wanting to start a panic, Lazutkin quietly and calmly said, Fire. But nobody heard him over the typical background noise of the station. Instead, a few seconds later, they all heard the station's smoke detectors kick in, and everybody scrambled into action. Nobody knew it at the time, but the metal casing of the canister itself was burning, fueled on by the pure oxygen produced by the chemical reaction. Needless to say, this was very bad. I think it says something about life on Mir that when Jerry Lininger, over Inspector, heard the master alarm kick in, his immediate reaction was to simply reach for some earplugs and to save the work on his laptop in case they lost power again. Ears plugged and work saved, he drifted out of Spectre into the node and was about to head into the base block to see what was going on, when he bumped into Vasily Tsibliev. In Russian, Leninger asked, Serious? And Tsibliev responded, Very. Fire. Leninger poked his head into the base block and the sight that greeted him was horrific. The caution and warning panel was fully lit up with all the various alerts and alarms being triggered. And at the far end of the module, through the passageway, he could see a blowtorch-like spout of flame spewing across Gavant 1. Leninger said that the flame was around 3 or 4 feet in length, about a meter, and looked like a hundred firework sparklers all lit at the same time, with sparks shooting all over the place. In addition to the flames and sparks, Leninger could also make out what looked like big globs of wax being propelled across the Gavant module and splattering on the walls. Only it wasn't wax, it was molten metal. In addition to the large jet of flame, Leninger also saw a cloud of smoke that was far denser and spread far more quickly than he had ever anticipated. Almost immediately, the entire station was filled with an acrid cloud of dense and toxic smoke. It's times like these that all the endless hours of astronaut training really pay off. This fire was clearly a critical emergency that needed to be dealt with immediately. But the correct course of action is what Leninger did next. He rushed back to the Spectre module. The fire needed to be extinguished, but without a proper source of oxygen, Leninger would soon lose consciousness, and unconscious people are terrible firefighters. Trying his best not to breathe the toxic smoke, Leninger made his way to a respirator, yanked it over his head, flipped the switch, and breathed in deep, only to discover that it was producing no oxygen. It was a dud. He tried breathing again, and was again greeted with nothing. Leninger later talked about the clarity of mind he experienced throughout this crisis. Time seemed to slow to a fraction of its actual speed, and he could clearly remember moment-by-moment -moment beats. At this particular moment, he talked about several thoughts that flitted through his mind. 
When the respirator didn't work, he calmly realized that he was going to die, and reflected on what a strange place this was for his life to end. He thought about his pregnant wife and his young son, and how he was sorry that he had let them down. But just a moment later, another voice kicked in. Find another respirator. He pulled the bad respirator off and made his way through the smoke to the location of a second one. With his peripheral vision getting fuzzy from lack of oxygen, he pulled the new mask onto his face, flipped the switch, and breathed in a stream of pure oxygen. The first immediate crisis was resolved. He could breathe. It was now time to address the next crisis up the chain. With the fire still raging, the crew met in the node, and Commander Corzon began issuing orders. Struggling to be understood through the thick mask of his respirator, he told the new crew to head into their Soyuz and begin to prepare for immediate evacuation. He told Kaleri to begin shutting down equipment, especially the air circulation fans. Normally, these fans were essential to maintaining a breathable atmosphere, but now they were just spreading the toxic smoke throughout the station. Then, Corzon entered the base block to begin to fight the fire directly. Now, you might be wondering why Corazon only asked for one Soyuz to be prepared. Clearly, this was a life-threatening emergency, and everybody should be prepared to evacuate the station, right? Well, a couple things. First, there was a very strong incentive to not abandon the station. Without a crew on board, Mir would likely fail within only a few weeks, and it would be difficult and likely impossible to recover. Without Mir, the Russian space program, along with the prestige and the jobs of all the cosmonauts, mission controllers, and engineers, would all potentially evaporate. So while I don't know if this was something that they actively considered in the midst of an inferno, the Russian crew had a strong built-in bias in favor of not evacuating unless it was literally the only option. Second, do you recall the layout of the station from the earlier description? The new Soyuz was at the quote-unquote back, attached to the node. Moving forward, we have the node, the base block, Gvat 1, and then the other Soyuz. See the problem? The fire was in between the crew and the other Soyuz. They were cut off, and escape was simply not an option. Leninger followed Corzon to help support him, and as he was grabbing a fire extinguisher, he happened to catch a glimpse of a real-time map, showing them over Boston. This meant that they would not have a communication pass with the ground for at least another 20 minutes or so. Leninger briefly considered using the ham radio to put out a general distress call, so the Russian and American mission controls could be aware of what was happening and begin preparations to support an emergency evacuation. But at that moment, the fire extinguisher was more important. If they did evacuate, it would be critically important that the ground be in the loop to help support them. But it would only be critically important in around 20 minutes. The fire was critically important now. Corzon moved into the Kvant 1 module and began spraying the fire down with a foam fire extinguisher. But when he found that the foam was more likely to splatter than to stick, he switched to a water-based extinguisher. It seemed to work better, but now the cabin was also filled with thick steam. Leninger assisted Corzon by bracing his body in the passageway between the base block and Kvant 1 and holding Corzon around the waist and giving him fresh fire extinguishers. Periodically, he would give Corzon a sort of shake, and Corzon would shake back to indicate that he was still conscious. The smoke and steam were so thick that Leninger literally couldn't see the man in front of him. As Corzon battled the flame, Leninger was struck by the sight of Alexander Kaleri calmly using the laptop in the base block, printing out emergency deorbit navigation information for both Soyuz spacecraft. 
I was also impressed by this move. Having the presence of mind to remember something like printing your directions home and simply getting it done with no fuss in the middle of the worst spacecraft fire in history is pretty remarkable. Kaleri is clearly a steely-eyed missile ruski. After fully depleting three fire extinguishers, the blaze finally burnt itself out. It had raged for 14 minutes. The first phase of the emergency was over, but the crew were still in a precarious situation. The fire was out, but the air was not breathable. One cosmonaut said that his first instinct was to open a window and clear out the smoke, but when he of course caught himself and realized that this was impossible, it was the first time that he was really scared. Right away, everyone tried to move as little as possible so they could get more time from the oxygen in their respirator packs. At the same time, they began sealing any burned and smoke-contaminated equipment and clothing into airtight bags so the toxins wouldn't get stirred up again. They also wiped down as much of the soot lining the walls as they could. Then, it was just a matter of waiting and hoping that the onboard life support systems could filter out the toxic air before they ran out of oxygen bottles. They found that gathering in the airlock helped, since the walls of the airlock got unusually cold, leading to condensation, and the moisture helped to collect smoke particles, resulting in a cleaner atmosphere. When Corzon's respirator ran out, he tried taking a breath of the air and found it to be acceptable. Another crisis resolved. They could now move in to long-term recovery. Lininger, a medical doctor, performed evaluations of the crew while also preparing to treat anybody who fell into respiratory distress due to smoke inhalation. Other than some relatively minor burns and some contusions from scrambling around in the smoke, the crew were healthy. Corzon asked Lininger to not report the minor injuries to the ground because he didn't trust them to not overreact. The old crew wanted to go home, and the new crew wanted to stay. Their injuries weren't serious enough to warrant changing any plans. Lininger agreed, and this would not be the last time that the true story of the fire would be altered. The crew seemed to be safe for now. The fire itself hadn't killed them, it hadn't melted a hole in the hull and vented all their air into space, and the worst of the toxic fumes were gone. But with an eye towards long-term consequences, Lininger took several air samples at 30-minute intervals around the station. This was done by using little balls that had a vacuum pulled on them. By activating them, they would suck in whatever air was around and safely store it for later analysis. This way, if there were any specific long-term health hazards to worry about, they would know what they were up against. Plus, as easily the largest fire to ever break out on a spacecraft, seeing how the atmosphere evolved over time would be incredibly helpful when planning emergency procedures for any future fires. If engineers had a better idea of what the onboard environment after a fire was like, they could design better safety equipment. The station itself held up surprisingly well. The candle and the machine it was inserted into was completely destroyed, along with some nearby equipment. Additionally, the radiant heat melted and burned off insulation from bundles of wires in Kavant 1. But that was actually the extent of the physical damage to the station. It seemed that Mir had dodged one heck of a bullet. What happened next is pretty illustrative of the challenges NASA faced when working with the Russians. First, NASA was simply not informed about this emergency until the next day. NASA employees working in Russia found out when they came to work in the morning. Second, when NASA was informed, it turns out that informed was sort of a strong word. Simply put, Russia completely downplayed the severity of the fire, describing it as a small blaze that was quickly extinguished. 
This is reflected in a February 24, 1997 press release from the Johnson Space Center, titled, Small Fire Extinguished on Mir. It begins with the sentence, A problem with an oxygen-generated device on the Mir space station last night set off fire alarms and caused minor damage to some hardware on the station. The press release goes on to say how the fire burned for 90 seconds, a far cry from the crew consensus of 14 minutes. The Russian ground controllers also began to push the narrative that the reason the candle malfunctioned was that Sasha Lazutkin must have opened the cartridge and then left it sitting around for a while in the damp Kavant 1 module before finally activating it. But based on the account of everyone there, this just simply isn't true. I think what's going on here shares a root cause with the crew's reluctance to abandon Mir. Let's say that we were to accept that the fire was caused by the candle malfunctioning all on its own. What are the consequences? Well, there are hundreds of other candles on the station that are all basically the exact same thing. If the candles aren't safe, then they can't be used. If the candles can't be used, then the crew can't stay on Mir. And if the crew can't stay on Mir, Mir dies and maybe takes the Russian space program with it. Now, as an alternative, let's imagine a world where Lazutkin simply screwed up the procedure. In that world, Lazutkin gets admonished for causing a crisis, but it wasn't the fault of the equipment. Which means that in this alternate reality, Mir is just as safe as it always was and things can continue on. So you can imagine which story the ground preferred to latch onto. The candles were required to keep the station going, but the ground did make one concession in order to declare them safe. Not a new design, not a new apparatus for operating them. No, they would simply require a crew member to stand by with a fire extinguisher whenever one was activated. The crew had an especially dim opinion of this plan, since in their view, the fire extinguishers aren't even what put out the big fire. Since it was feeding itself oxygen, the extinguishers seemed to make no impact. It seems to have simply consumed the candle, run out of fuel and oxygen, and gone out all on its own. But okay, fine, we'll keep a fire extinguisher nearby. In the days after the fire, life on board the station returned to its usual routine. Because what was the alternative? Somewhat counterintuitively, Leninger seems to have come through this near-catastrophe stronger than ever. And I guess I can see that. A major fire is just about the worst imaginable problem on a space station that's still possible to survive. Leninger had made it through an event that confirmed that his crew were up to the challenge, his training had served him well, and that when it was really, really important, he was personally able to keep a clear head and act rationally in order to save himself and his crewmates. On the night after the fire, Jerry Leninger slept soundly. Next time. It's good that Leninger is sleeping soundly, because he's going to need to be fully rested for what comes next. Next time on The Space Above Us, we'll cover Part 2 of NASA 4. We've got systems failures, toxic leaks, a historical EVA, and a sight out the window that is sure to make anyone's heart race. Sometimes progress in space is slower than we would like, and sometimes it sneaks up on you way too quickly for comfort. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>